And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood. Thanks for listening. Whether that be live over at Joy620 or listening to podcasts at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show today. As always, we have a lot to talk about as uh, we're coming off the 4th of July week. A little bit different this, this year as 4th of July was on a Tuesday. Some people got to be off on Monday and Tuesday. Some people took the whole week off. Some people like me had a birthday a couple of days after, and so I took that day off as well. But either way, we are back and we are ready to talk about life and what's happening around the country. And today what I want to start with is some news. Our um, Tennessee Representative Green introduces um, some some legislation that hopefully will help us uh, in Tennessee. Now, What's happening is is something that we talked about here multiple times. When when a president makes executive orders and, and kind of does legislates via the pen, and what do I mean by that? Well, if you if you remember, you go back to President Obama. Uh, he says he had a a phone and a pen, and what he meant by that is, look, if if Congress will not act, then I will just by fiat you know, do an executive order and we'll do what we want to do. Uh, you go back, every president has used executive order in some shape, form, or fashion, but over the last couple decades, you've seen it used a lot more. So President Bush used it, President Clinton used it, uh, then George W. used it, Obama ramped it up a little bit, uh, Donald Trump comes in, he does the same thing, he continues to use it, and then Joe Biden comes in, and, and he's doing the same thing. But the, here's the problem with it, okay? So if you legislate that way, if you are the president of the United States and you are doing things by executive order, and for, you know, let's say you're a conservative, and so conservatives are going, yay, thanks for the executive order, conservative president. Well, if that conservative president loses and another president comes in, and that president is from the left and and we don't agree with him, guess what? He's going to undo all the things that were done, and that's what we are seeing. And so the article over at Fox News says this. Uh, let's see, Mark Green of Tennessee will introduce the State's Choose Life Act of 2023 to protect Tennessee and other pro-life states from the Biden administration and retribution from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, in a statement to Fox News Digital, Green said his legislation would prevent the HHS from stripping Title X funding from 10 states that do not allow abortions and do not refer residents to abortion-allowing states, as it is doing in Tennessee. Uh, this is what Green said. HHS cannot be allowed to continue forcing states to participate in abortions or risk losing Title X funding. Representative Green said in a, in a statement, Tennesseans and Americans from coast to coast rely on Title X for access to health to, to care. Green, who is also an ER physician, added, quote, if states are unable to backfill the void of revoked Title X funding, many Americans could be left without access to cancer screenings and pregnancy services. We must protect the rights of states to pass pro-life laws without the federal government seeking retribution. Title X is a family planning program that was established under the Public Health Service Act in 1970. It offers access to contraceptive care and other services, particularly to low-income Americans, and serves approximately 4 million people annually, according to HHS. 
The Trump administration, this is what I was talking about with executive order type stuff or, or kind of legislated via the pen. The Trump administration initially passed a rule that wildly prohibited funding from being used for abortion services, but the Biden administration reversed this rule. Green is taking action to prevent the HHS from weaponizing Title X to remove funding against states that choose to protect the right to life, saying the bill will protect Tennessee from being bullied by the federal government into propping up the abortion industry. Specifically, the legislation amends Title X of the Public Health Service Act to prohibit HHS from revoking funding for states that don't make referrals for abortion. The bill also comes after the HHS wrote a letter to the state of Tennessee saying it would no longer be providing Title X funding, which the state has utilized to support low-income families for decades. Green wrote a letter, a letter earlier this month to HHS secretary expressing great concern over this new ruling. And, and look, just to give you more context, what is happening? Okay, so states like Tennessee have banned abortion, right? So they have restricted abortion. And the Biden administration, you know, Biden administration and a number of, of senators, a number of uh, congressmen have said, well, we think the Supreme Court is illegitimate. We think that's a bad ruling, the, the Dobbs case and the overturning of Roe. We're, we're at a year, the year anniversary, a little bit over a year since that ruling occurred. And so what the administration is doing under uh, HHS and, and others is saying, okay, you want to pass laws that restrict abortion? Well, we're going to cut funding. And if you want this funding, all you got to do is bow the knee and, you know, provide abortion. And provide funds that are going to allow for abortion and, and allow people to get abortions. So this is like, it, it boggles my mind. Now, now politics are messy and, and we see the messiness of that in a number of ways, Republican and Democrats alike. But this is like the, the, the definition of, uh, pay to play. The HHS is saying, if you want funding to help women that are low income with health screenings and contraception, all you got to do is, is get rid of your abortion restrictions. You get rid of that and we'll write the check. Now, now let's sit back and think about this from a, from a, just a logical view. If, if an administration were, were doing the other thing and they said, if you provide abortions in your state, we are going to cut your funding. And if you want that funding, all you got to do is restrict abortion. We would, we would hear all the, the stories on cable news and see all the articles and everybody would be on the Sunday shows talking about how crazy right wing nut president that is and how dare they hold that, those funds hostage to push the anti-abortion agenda, we would hear all that. But we wouldn't just hear it from people on the left. We would hear it from mainstream uh, talk show hosts. We, we would hear it from, from everybody. But, but when it's done the other direction, you, you, it's crickets. Minus a, a few articles here and there, like this one over at Fox News. But you want to know if this, you know, maybe you're listening, you're going, but really though, is, is this really affecting anything? Is this really changing anything in Tennessee? 
Well, yeah, there was a meeting just the other day in Knox County discussing this very thing. There are meetings happening all over the state discussing this very thing because this funding, whether you agree with federal funding or not, the reality is this funding has been in place since Nixon was president. And it was bipartisan back then. It was put in place to help low-income families with contraception and other health screenings. And so whether you agree with it or not, let's set that aside for a second. The reality is states have been depending on these dollars since the 70s. And then you fast forward to 2023 and HHS says, well, if you want to continue getting that money, you've got to allow us to have abortions because, you know, abortion is the be all end all. It's the idol. It's the golden calf. We, we have to have abortions or you can't get these millions of dollars. And, and sure, we understand that some women are going to be harmed because they're not getting the care that they need. Sure, we understand that some women, like Representative, or like Green said, may miss cancer screening. Sure, some women may not get contraception. Sure, some low-income families may not get the health care that they need. But all you got to do is provide abortion and we'll cut the check. But if you're not going to provide abortions, then, you know, figure it out yourselves. And so now you have health departments across the, the, across the state and really in, in, across the country in states that, are, that have restricted abortion and these, these funds are drying up. You're having health departments trying to figure out what do, what do we do now. We have programs based on this funding. If this funding is gone, what does this mean for programs? What does this mean for employees? What does this mean for families? So this isn't just going to break down kind of the care structure that some folks are accustomed to getting. It could break down some family units because they a job may go away because the funding isn't there. Now, some would say, well, it, all, all the state has to do is not restrict abortion. Well, that's not going to happen. You're not going to blackmail the state of Tennessee into providing abortion just to get some of these funds. The The... The problem here is the folks in D.C., not the folks in the state of Tennessee. And so the interesting thing is going to be those that claim in Washington, those that claim they care about women's health. Those that claim they care about women getting cancer screenings. Those that claim they care about women getting contraception. Those that claim... All of these things. Are they going to support Green's piece of legislation that simply says you you can't hold back this funding because the state has a law on abortion? Now, what I would be willing to bet is that there's going to be a lot of folks in D.C. that care a lot more about abortion than they do about low-income families getting the care that they need. Because, again, abortion is the golden calf. We've seen that for decades. We've certainly seen that since June 24th of 2022. So as we think about this, and, and people often say, well, well, politics is messy and, and, you know, I don't want anything part to do with it. It's crooked and all this. Well, th- it's things like this that make people go, I don't want any part of it. It's things like this where people go, look, why am I even voting? 
Why should I involve myself in what's happening? And, and see, decisions are being made in Washington that are having lasting ramifications in the state of Tennessee, that are, that are having lasting ramifications with health departments across the state of Tennessee, that are having lasting ramifications with low-income families across the state of Tennessee. All because the folks in Washington think that in order for anybody to have success in life, they have to be able to abort their child. You remember, I've said that, that every government is a theocracy. It just depends on who the theo is. Who is the God? What is the idol? And abortion has become that. And so now we're seeing, and, and, and I, I, I'm telling you firsthand, some folks just the other day scrambled to have meetings of, hey, how, how do we figure out, how, how do we make this up? Now, now what's going to happen, regardless of, of what happens in D.C., the state of Tennessee is run in such a way that the state of Tennessee is going to figure it out. They're going to figure out a way to get funding in place to help these folks. But the sad part is a decision was made in D.C. out of spite. Not, not to say, hey, this decision is going to help more people. No, no, they're not doing it to help more people. They could. They could make a decision and say, even though, look, this is how baffling this is. I'm not pro-abortion. I, I'm anti-abortion in every shape, form, or fashion. But, but if I'm sitting there and I'm in their shoes right now, what I would do is say, we could make a decision now out of spite, or we could rise above it all. And use this as an opportunity to say and to show just how much we care about women in these states. They could even word it in such a way of the state of Tennessee doesn't care about their women, but we do. That's why we're not going to pull Title X funding. But, of course, they're not going to do that. They're instead making decisions out of spite. Those backwood Tennesseans, they want to take us back to the olden days. They want to take away abortion, so we're going to take away their funding. That's decision made out of spite, not out of, hey, how can we best help our citizens? And it's ridiculous. Because they can make these decisions and pull funding and do all these things, and they don't think about who that is affecting down the road. No, they, they just are saying this is going to hurt a red state that we don't like and that will never vote for us anyway. So what's the, what's the shame? What's the problem? And that's where we are. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation today, I'm, I've been talking a lot over the last few weeks, months, about identity, about life and abortion, about marriage numbers, about fertility numbers, about all of these things. And, and I'm talking about them because they're all connected. And, and so what I want to do now is there's a piece over at the New York Post that goes into greater detail about some of the things we've been talking about over the last uh, couple months. And, and it's interesting because these numbers continue to go in the wrong direction. A record number of 40-year-olds in the United States have never been married. 
and most of them are living alone, according to a new analysis of the U.S. Census Bureau data. The Pew Research Center analyzed Census Bureau data from 21 and found 25% of 40-year-olds that year had never been married, a sharp increase from 20% in 2010. So in 11 years, it saw a 5% increase from 20% to 25%. Many of these individuals lived alone with just 22% of never married adults ages 40 to 44 reporting last year that they cohabitated with a romantic partner. The 2021 data marks a new peak in what's been a decades-long trend. This, this number that I'm about to give you is unbelievable. The share of unmarried 40-year-olds has steadily been increasing since 1980. In 1980, the number of unmarried 40-year-olds was 6%. 6% in 1980. In 2023... Actually, in 2021, that number is 25%. According to the data, a higher share of men than women had never been married. And black 40-year-olds were much more likely to have never married than Hispanic, white, and Asian 40-year-olds. Education also seemed to play an important factor as 40-year-olds without a four-year college degree were more likely to have never married than those who had completed at least a bachelor's degree. The overall decrease in the share of 40-year-olds who have married is especially notable because the share of 40-year-olds who had completed at least a bachelor's degree was much higher in 21 than in 1980, 39% versus 18%. Richard Fry, senior researcher for Pew, wrote in a summary of the findings. More highly educated 40-year-olds are more likely to have married, but the growth of this group has not reversed the overall trend of delaying or foregoing marriage. Pew conducted the analysis to examine how marriage rates have changed among 40-year-olds in the U.S. from 1850 to 2021. The data revealed a growing trend of delaying marriage or foregoing it altogether among people born during or after the 1960s. Pew's findings echo those of University of Virginia National Marriage Project, which found in a report last year that the median age of a first marriage has increased over the last 50 years from 23 in 1970 to about 30 in 2021 for men and from 21 in 1970 to 28 in 2021 for women. The study noted a later marriage doesn't necessarily mean a better one, reporting that 81% of husbands who married earlier said they were satisfied in their marriage compared to just 71% of those who married later. As for women, 73% of women who married earlier were satisfied compared to 70% of later married women. Fry told CNN that the Pew report focused on 40-year-olds to reflect the fact that adults tend to take stock of their lives at the start of a new decade of life, noting a connection between fertility and marriage. Some women may want to have children in the context of marriage. Since fertility wanes after the age of 40, 40 is an appropriate age to document marriage outcomes. According to Census Bureau data, less than one in five adults had not tried marriage by age 40 in all prior generations of American adults. However, Fry noted in Pew's analysis that people do marry for the first time late in life. To be sure, we can't assume that if someone has not married by age 40, they never will. In fact, about one in four 40-year-olds who had not married in 2001 had done so by the age of 60. If that pattern holds, a similar share of today's never-married 40-year-olds will marry in the coming decades. In a separate report from last month, Pew noted that young adults are reaching key life milestones later than earlier generations such as achieving a full-time job, financial independence, independent living, and parenthood. The report comes amid a decline in U.S. birth and marriage rates that's been underway for decades. 
Earlier this month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that just under 3.7 million babies were born in the U.S. last year, about 3,000 fewer than in 2021. The CDC also found that birth rates for teens and young women hit record lows since peaking in 1991. Specifically, the U.S. teen birth rate fell by 3% from 2021 to an all-time low last year. So, look, these things are important, and we've talked about it, and we've talked about it, and we've talked about it, and we've looked at it, and we've we've analyzed it. And and as culture continues to to de-link everything and de-link the things of God, and and God is a God of order, and what sin came in and and, and did was, was created chaos where there should have been order. And so what we're seeing now is the fallout of that. What we're seeing now is, for a while, we saw marriages break down. We, 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 we continue to see divorce rates kind of hover around the same number. And now, I, I think, frankly, because of some of that, what you're seeing is people going, I'm just not going to do it at all. My parents' marriage was atrocious, so I'm not going to do it at all. I'm not going to put myself through that. And then in the same way, what you're seeing is you're seeing people go, well, and, and also, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids. You know, you often hear people, uh, you know, millennials, my, you know, my group, uh, sometimes will say, well, well, things are so bad. I, I just can't imagine bringing a child into the world that we're living in now. I mean, the, the climate change is so bad. I just can't imagine bringing a child into the world that we live in now. I, I just, I, there's so much I want to do. I just can't imagine bringing a child into the world or, or I just, I really just love me and, and I just, I'm happy with me and I'm able to do whatever I want to do. And so why, why muddy that up with a family? Why muddy that up with a family? I haven't said this on air. But the Wood family is expecting baby number five in January. So I just turned 39 last week and and been married almost, uh, what's the math, 2006 is when I got married for almost 17 years, be 17 years in September. Oldest child is 12, currently youngest child is five. We have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and then in January, we're going to have a baby. And it's been interesting as I've, you know, with the fifth, we've just kind of been randomly telling people, no no big plan, haven't posted it on social media yet. My wife may not even be happy that I'm saying it <laughs> on, on the radio and on this podcast at this moment. But But I want to give you context that my life hasn't been hindered because I got married when I was 22 years old. My life hasn't been hindered because we've had a bunch of kids. It, it, it just hasn't. I mean, I, I am physically in the best shape of my life. I'm healthier than I've ever been. Mentally, I'm in a good spot. I'm happy. My wife is happy. My kids are happy. And so the world would say, and, and, and as I've been telling folks, 
about this, I've heard things like, you're crazy, you're insane, better you than me. I can't believe y'all are doing this again. But it's interesting, at Dad's class uh, a couple weeks ago, I told these group of dads that that didn't have pregnancy planned. These were pregnancies that occurred that were unplanned, and they're trying to step up the plate, trying to figure out how they're going to be a father to these kids. And every single one of them looked me in the eye and said, congratulations, that's awesome. Not one of them said, I can't believe you're doing number five. That's crazy. Every single one of them looked at me and simply said, congratulations. Why is that? Because we're trying to to equip them to step into these roles. And they've seen how important these roles are. And they've also understood that this is a blessing. That this is wonderful. But our culture sees and says, hold on, but again, remember what I've said. that The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's intentional about it. And so... The enemy may say, are you sure you want another one? Are you sure you want to marry? And, and that's going to change some things. And folks, we have, we have a culture that's starting to listen to that voice. And they're going in the wrong direction. And Lord, I hope that, that, that God intervenes and changes the current path that we're on. We'll be back. As we continue the conversation today, you know, often I will I will talk about what's happening in D.C. I'll talk about what's happening in our state, what's happening around the country when it comes to life and abortion. As I said, over the last uh, few months, we've been talking a lot about marriage, fertility rates, and, and kind of the decline in those things. And, and the path that, that uh, at least I see us going is not the path that, that a society or culture should start down because it, even – Look, obviously, I have a biblical worldview. So, so I have, you know, I'm trying to hold the things that God holds in high value and high value for myself. That should be held in high value for our culture. But what's happening is a secular culture is coming in and going, what are the high value? Well, the high value in a secular culture is self. I'm going to get mine. Only the strong survive. What, what can I do to make my life better? And so a secular culture ultimately comes to an end. Why? Because we stop reproducing. We stop marrying. We are choosing self over others. We don't want to sacrifice. And so that's the path that we seem to be down. And so oftentimes when when we look at this, many times it's because, you know, this administration or that administration or this court decision or or this left-wing crazy person is is calling for for a piece of legislation or or whatever but but i want you to to understand it's not just left-wing folks sometimes those that that claim to be conservative make decisions politically that they think will be helpful but in the in the reality it continues to water down marriage it continues to water down parenting. And that's what I want to look at right now. Over at the Washington Examiner, there's a piece by Bradford Wilcox. And if you're not following him and reading his stuff, he's he's amazing when it comes to family, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to uh, parenthood. He just does great analysis and reports and studies uh, on those things. Well, 
The title of this opinion piece is called House Republicans Plan Penalizes Marriage. And here's what it says. We just got more bad news about marriage. A record high 25% of 40-year-olds in the United States were never married in 2021. That's what we just talked about, according to sobering new statistics from the Pew Research Center. That statistic compares to just 6% of never married 40-year-olds in 1980, underscoring marriages falling fortunes in recent decades. Digging further into the Pew data reveals that this retreat from marriage and family life has hit vulnerable populations the hardest, minorities, the working class, and poor Americans. The upper classes continue to marry. This is what I've talked about over and over and over again. Even those that we would call the left or the elite who attack Christianity at every chance they get and who attack pro-lifers at every chance they get. If you look and they attack private school and they attack homeschool and they attack traditional families and traditional values, even those folks, if you look at their life, what are they doing? They're marrying it's husband, wife, children in the home. They're sending their kids to private school. They're sending their, their kids to charter schools. They're sending their kids to the best colleges in the, in the country. So they are living out traditional family values in their home, but they're not living those traditional family values out in the voting booth. They're not living those traditional families out, family values out when it comes to the politics of it all. They claim, Republicans and Democrats both claim, that they care about the working class of this country, the poor in this country, the minorities in this country. But the reality is the legislation that, that many of them are supporting and calling for is harming those folks. When you can't define and say what a man and a woman is, and when, when you can't admit that marriage is, is the best path forward, yet you are living those truths out in your own life. You just can't bring yourself to say those things. You're harming a generation of folks. The upper classes continue to marry, forge stable unions, and enjoy a reasonably happy family life, while the lower classes drift into a world of relational chaos. Against the backdrop, backdrop of this bad news, a new tax proposal put forward by Republicans in the U.S. House would further erode and undermine the institution of marriage and the family. The Tax Cuts for Working Families Act, which recently passed the House Ways and Means Committee headed by Chairman Jason Smith, inexplicably penalizes marriage among the working class and subsidizes cohabitation, the exact opposite of what family-friendly policy should do in a day and age when marriage is in trouble. The legislation also fails to extend the federal child tax credit the value of the credit doubled from $1,000 to $2,000 per child under former President Donald Trump. But that increase is set to expire at the end of 2025. Remarkably, the bill in question does nothing to lock in the credit's current value for families. For a proposal that purports to be about helping families financially, this is a serious miss. Rather than explore ways to shore up the credit to support families in their key child-rearing years, the Tax Cuts for Working Families Act would simply increase the standard deduction for all households, $2,000 for singles, $3,000 for heads of household, and $4,000 for married couples. Most of the law benefits would flow to affluent households rather than to the middle and working class families who need the most help. What's worse, the way this revision of the standard deduction is set up imposes new marriage penalties and encourages couples to cohabit rather than to tie the knot. 
As one pointed out in the Washington Post, under the proposal, two working people would pay more in taxes if they got married, at least if they have kids. As Patrick T. Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center noted, Republicans who trumpet their commitment to the family could at least make sure their family bill doesn't penalize our nation's most fundamental institution, marriage. Is there a better way forward? Thankfully, there is a family-friendly contingent among congressional Republicans in the Senate, led by figures such as Senator Marco Rubio, Marsha Blackburn, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, and J.D. Vance. These lawmakers recognize how profoundly fragile American families and marriages are in our contemporary climate. For his part, Rubio just put forth a set of policy proposals in the Harvard Law School Journal legislation that would work to eliminate marriage penalties in the federal tax code and further expand the federal child tax credit. For one, Rubio points out that a cohabiting couple with two children earning a combined 40000 yearly wage currently faces an approximately $3,000 penalty in the earned income tax credit by marrying. So, so did you heard that right. If they get married, they are taxed more. At a minimum, this should be changed so the couple receives the same amount in the earned income tax credit after marriage as it did beforehand, Rubio writes. As for the child tax credit, Rubio proposes taking the amount to $3,500 for each child and $4,500 for every child under six. Rubio's approach is much more consistent with the idea that the Republican Party is the parents' party than this new House plan. Let's hope that future proposals to help families from the GOP House line up with the spirit of Rubio's proposals rather than that of the Tax Cuts for Working Families Act. After all, the last thing America needs is a new law that lands yet another blow on marriage. I mean, this is, this is what's mind-boggling, is when, when folks in Washington put forth legislation and claim that we are, uh, I mean, this, this is what really irks me about folks on my team. We are family first. We are the family party. We, we believe in traditional family values. But what are they doing to encourage marriage? What are they doing to discourage cohabitating with unmarried partners? What are they doing to encourage family structure? What are they doing to foster environments that allow for families to flourish? I can promise you everyone that is hearing my voice right now knows a family, knows a family, knows, knows friends, knows people in our life that, that have made choices on marriage and parenting and jobs based on what that means for their tax burden. What, is, what does this decision mean? So if I get married, do I lose a voucher? If I get married, do I lose the ability to pay for daycare? If, if I take this promotion, am I going to lose the, the current assistance that I'm getting that helps me pay my rent and helps me feed my children? You see, so we have created a system that, that doesn't incentivize taking that promotion, that doesn't incentivize getting married, that doesn't incentivize having children. It actually goes the other direction. So then don't be surprised that our marriage numbers are declining. Don't be surprised that our parenting numbers are declining. And, and it seems so simple. And then you've got experts like, like Wilcox that, that wrote this opinion piece 
Like, he, he is conservative. And, and he's saying, look, I look at the data and, and the studies all the time. And the data and the studies are telling us this. And y'all are doing le- and, and wanting to pass legislation that goes in the opposite direction of that. It makes no sense. It, it makes zero sense. And we've seen what can be done. In the state of Tennessee, Governor Lee said, we're going to take care of diapers up to two years for moms that are, that are on care. Makes sense. Great, great plan. It's going to help a lot of families out. In the state of Florida, DeSantis and, and the, the House and Senate in, in the state of Florida is saying, we're going to remove sales tax on all baby items, period. It's that simple, folks. These are, these are pieces of legislation that, that, frankly, everyone should be behind. It doesn't raise your taxes. It doesn't harm you. And instead, we're, we're still trying to figure out some of these folks in Washington, the problem is they've been there literally since the 60s. And so they're, they're trying to enact laws that didn't work then, but, but they haven't really changed anything. They're still working in that mindset instead of going, hold on, what can we do to help families today? What can we do to, to incentivize marriage? What can we do to incentivize the family unit? What can we do to foster an environment that's going to allow for a family to flourish? And instead, we get a piece of legislation that literally is going to cost a family more money if they decide to get married. And depending on where your income level is, you may say, it's just not worth it. I need that extra $3,000, $4,000, so I can't get married right now. It's nonsense. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, look, there's a lot that that goes on around our country and society. And, you know, we often talk about legislation and court decisions and, and all those things. But and some of you may be listening going, man, the, you've just really been talking a lot about marriage and, and fertility rates. Like, what, what does that have to do with, with what we're doing? We have created an atmosphere in our society and in our culture that incentivizes abortion, that incentivizes the, the deconstruction of family, that... We have created an environment that, that decentivizes understanding who you are and, and identity. And, and so what we have done is created a society and culture that is chaos. Now remember, as I said earlier, we serve a God that is a God of order. There's a reason why things were put into place the way they were. And that's why if we get away from the biblical worldview, I don't care if you're a congressman, I don't care if you're a senator, I don't care if you're a county commissioner, I don't care if you sit on the city council, I don't care if you're the DA, a public defender, a state employee, a county employee. Once we get out of the order that has been ordained by the God of the universe, 
we step into chaos. And so we should not be surprised then when we've spent decades devaluing the church. We've spent decades devaluing marriage. We've spent decades devaluing parenthood. And so in doing that, we shouldn't be surprised at some of these things. We also shouldn't be surprised at, at seeing political promises made not be kept once someone is in office. I mean, I, I could go on about this forever, but just recently, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, the Governor Shapiro was just elected. He ran as a Democrat on school choice and vouchers. So a lot of conservatives were like, hey, this guy's not that bad. I mean, we need school vouchers. We need school choice. We need charter schools. He ran on that and said, if I'm elected your governor, I'm going to make a change in our state. Well, just last week, what did he do? He put out a long statement saying, yeah, not happening. All that that I said on the campaign trail, I'm doing zero of it. Zero. But, you know, we have a short attention span and people will forget about that and he'll just go on his merry way. And he just flat out broke his promise to everyone that voted for him. And many voted for him based solely on that. So you could either look at that and go, okay, this is why. I'm never going to vote again. This is why I'm not going to get involved and, and engage in the process. Or we can say this is why it's important to vet our people. This is why it's important to, to lobby and to uh, be involved. But if we don't have leaders in our nation at every level willing to say the hard things, willing to say we need to incentivize marriage, marriage matters. We need to incentivize having babies. Reproducing matters. And although that is my biblical worldview, the data supports it as well. We see it all the time. You go ask anyone, do we have a father, fatherhood issue in our country? Nine times out of ten, people are going to say, yes, we do. Okay, what should we do about it? Well, I, you know... I mean, there's no gender roles. A dad doesn't have a role. A mom doesn't have a role. Well, hold on. I thought you just said there that it's clear we have a fatherhood issue. Well, it is clear we have a fatherhood issue. Okay, well, then what are some things we can do to equip dads to be better dads? Well, dads don't have a, have a role, and moms don't, they don't have exclusive roles. Well, well, hold on. Explain to me how we have a fatherhood issue, while at the same time you can't tell me what a father is. You see how ridiculous this sounds? Yeah, that's where we are. And so even though the data supports it, even though a biblical worldview says, hey, these structures in place are going to create uh, happier, healthier, more successful families. We know this. This is what order does. Even though we know all of this, we have a culture and a society that says, well, I can't admit that that's the best way. I just can't do it. And so that's where we have to come in and say, hold on, we're going to be bold in what we're saying. We're going to unapologetically say that marriage has value, unapologetically say that, that we're going to hold up the high ideas 
of God, mom, dad, children in the home. It's not always going to work out that way. But again, it's the highest idea. Let's let's celebrate it. Let's let's try to achieve it. That's the message I'm sending to my children. I hope that's the message you're sending to your children. It makes a difference. That's the message we're sending to the hope, the, the patients at hope, to the moms and dads that are coming in our doors. Pregnancy centers are doing that all over the country. It's worth it. Let's keep pressing in. We'll talk to you next time.